As you remain standing, you can grab your Bible and turn to the last book in God's Word. Chapter 21 is where we will be together tonight. If you don't happen to have a Bible, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find tonight's text on one of the last two pages as we come to the very end of God's Word. We want to look tonight at the first section, really the first two sections in chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. So let me read uh, those verses for us and uh, then pray for our time and and we'll begin together. So let's hear now as God speaks to us uh, once again through his word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together once again. Father, we do ask your mercy and grace would come to us now by your word and through your spirit as you speak to us. Let you set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at your right hand, that we would no longer be fixated upon the things of earth, but instead raise our gaze towards heaven, for Christ is our life. Lord, stir within us a longing for our eternal home. Convict us of the ways in which we have become too settled on this earth, too faithless under the midst of our difficulty, that we might know the courage that's found in your Son and the place he has prepared for us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the joys, of course, of being a pastor is you get to officiate weddings And every wedding is different, and at the same time, certainly every uh, Christian wedding is similar in what you celebrate and the happiness attached to it. I've had the privilege to uh, marry couples that are still kids in college with many years ahead of them, Uh, even marry couples who are in their 80s with only but a few years ahead of them. And each one of those scenarios, no matter how many years separate the two, that are getting married, there's always two phrases that tend to stick out to me as you pastor the 
groom and the bride through the wedding service, one of which is you'll eventually come to a place, or at least I do, where you'll sidle up to the groom and you'll put a hand on his shoulder and you'll look him in the eye and you'll say, are you ready? And normally with a grin on his face and some degree perhaps of particular excitement, he'll always say, yes, of course I am. And then somewhere along the way, after the wedding is done, usually in the rehearsal time, there's another pastoral moment where you go to the parents of the bride or the parents of the groom, and you say, how does it feel now that it's over? And normally the phrase that I hear in such a conversation with those parents is, we're so happy, it's done. And I tell you that because tonight what we come to in chapter 21 is the wedding of all weddings. Where none other than God himself will speak from the throne and say, it's done. It's finally over. Or perhaps better said, it's finally here. Because students, you may not realize that in the Bible's greatest chapter, perhaps, on the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, it all comes to us in this metaphor of a marriage. You might have noticed that if you glance down again at verse 2, where we're told that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is coming down from heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then if you skip ahead to next week's text, notice in verse 9 of the very same chapter, where an angel says to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So if you work your way through chapter 21, what what you realize is that the new heavens and the new earth, is both a bride and a home. It's a people and a place. It's a community and it's, it's a creation. And it should strike you right from the outset, perhaps maybe as particularly important why, of all metaphors he might use, God decides to use this metaphor of marriage for the eternal relationship that belongs to him and his people. For what is marriage but the union and communion of two people. Does not Ephesians 5 tell us that the union and communion of one man and one woman reflects the union and communion that belongs to Christ and his church? So, of course, it's natural then when we begin to think of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, the, the new creation that it comes to us in this metaphor of a marriage. Some of you might know that the old Puritans were a meditative bunch, and a recent scholar has put together a paper on the Puritan practice of meditation. and took all the, the representative manuals, hundreds and hundreds of pages, on how the Puritans encouraged people to grow in the practice of meditation. And they took all the subjects that were encouraged from those authors to the readers of the, the primary subjects for Christians to meditate on in their ordinary life. And the subject that rose above all other subjects was meditation on heaven. I wonder when was the last time that perhaps a meditation on heaven interrupted your day. Perhaps as we're going to soon see in the midst of a time of suffering and hardship. That your mind was momentarily consumed with the vision of what's coming. And if you're anything like me, I suppose that you would recognize that far too often, our life has far too little meditation on heaven. But it's a kindness of God, isn't it, tonight, that we get to stop and stare at this first of a few visions that John receives about the life that belongs to his people. So it comes in two clear sections. First, we're going to notice eternal transformation. 
in really verses 1 through 5 at the beginning, this everlasting transformation that belongs to the new heavens and the new earth. And by the time we get to the end of the passage, we once again in Revelation are confronted with the reality of everlasting separation. So transformation begins, notice verse 1, once again, where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In the original, it's a language that says, and then I saw. So kids, do you remember what he saw, John, at the end of chapter 20, which we talked about last week? You remember, it was this great vision, wasn't it, of the Father seated on his great white throne. This scene of the final judgment. And it wasn't just a vision of the throne, it was the vision of these books that belonged to the final judgment. What we heard last week were books being opened And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if any name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what you need to see is this kind of connection between the end of chapter 20 and chapter 21 is simply this. What we saw last week was the eternal destiny of God's enemies. Now, it tells us what is the fate of God's friends. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven. And the first earth, verse 1 continues, had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, that language there uh, of passed away perhaps is one that has caused confusion in your life. What does it mean that the Lord is going to make a new heavens and the new earth? It, it certainly doesn't mean that the Lord is going to destroy this earth and build an entirely new one. It, it just means a new creation uh, via regeneration in the same way that he doesn't destroy our hearts but he regenerates our hearts in the same way the Lord's not going to destroy this earth but he's going to regenerate this cursed world and to give you an idea of how glorious the future home that belongs to his people is the text tells us there's not going to be a sea there now some of you might be beach people you love to vacation at oceans and, and seas and, and lakes. And you read verse 1 and think, well, heaven doesn't seem so terribly great if there's no water going to be there. And you might know, don't you, that this is an apocalyptic book. Its language is often symbolic and representative. And what is the sea being no more telling us other than the evil and chaos that the apocalyptic genre associates with the sea? That evil, that chaos will all be gone in the new heavens and a new earth. You see the twin metaphors that come now in verse 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It continues to call on language from Isaiah. It's this tale of two cities we've talked about, haven't we, in recent weeks in Revelation that this book is little more than the story between the harlot that is Babylon and the pure bride that is the new Jerusalem. Babylon, we've seen in recent weeks, going to be thrust into that eternal fiery abyss, the pit below. Here, the new Jerusalem prepared as a bride for the Lord. And it's language, actually, this marriage metaphor that goes all the way back to the Old Testament, as so much in the book of Revelation does, which you'll find in Isaiah 62, verse 4 and 5. What the Lord says is this to his people, speaking about the future You shall no more be called forsaken, your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. 
For the Lord delights in you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. So picture, of course, an ordinary wedding. How often when the doors are flung open, the bride is presented, people began to stare at the groom. I say, well, what's on his face? And isn't it often this smile of, of immense joy? Satisfaction and delight, such as the smile that belongs to your Savior as God is preparing a people and a place for His Son. And in the same way, just as a marriage often has this official pronouncement, this summons that seems to fix the relationship. Notice the summons and loud voice of verse 3. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, kids, I wonder if that language sounds at all familiar. It should sound familiar to you if you're familiar with the Old Testament, particularly God's covenant grace. Because it's something you can almost term the, the covenant formula that you find in all of God's covenants. I will be their God. And they will be my people. Covenant promise, of course, made to Abraham. Covenant promise, of course, made in the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the New Covenant. Here now reaching its fullness, its finality. And the Lord saying, in the new heavens and the new earth, all the universe is going to be my temple. We'll think about that more in the coming weeks. For, of course, God and the Lamb is the temple. Dwelling always with his people. So students, what does it mean? That God has finally arrived to dwell with his people. Well, this is the scene in the end of the Lord of the Rings where Samwise is recuperating on this bed. He and Frodo have finally destroyed this ring of power in Mount Doom. And Sam doesn't realize that peace has now finally fallen upon the world of Middle Earth, that there's this growing prosperity in the land. And so as Gandalf sits on his bed... Uh, Sam looks at him concerned and says, Gandalf, will all the sad things become untrue? And I was talking with a brother in our church actually last fall. We were sitting on a tailgate right out here in the parking lot. And he had gone through immense and incredible suffering. And he looked out the, the side of his eyes to me and says, You know, everywhere we look in life right now, it's all just sad. What comfort there is, isn't there? Verse 4. All the sad things soon to become untrue. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We'll think about this more in a minute, but surely this is the glory of everlasting transformation. Every sadness eradicated, every sorrow removed. Every hurt, every harm swallowed up in the ocean of God's grace. Every misery vanquished by his eternal mercy. Everlasting transformation. As the verse continues, God seals it, doesn't he? Verse 5. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, students, whenever you read the Bible, you need to make sure you understand the words. Sometimes the best way to understand the words is to recognize what God doesn't say. You see here, everlasting transformation. God doesn't say, behold, I'm making some things new. 
Nor does he announce, Behold, I'm making most things new. Behold, I am making every single thing new for my people, such as the vastness and the everlasting glory and goodness of his transformation in the new heavens and the new earth. Which naturally then leads, doesn't it, by the end of our passage, to be reminded once again of everlasting separation. Because you see, what the Lord does is it seems as though he confirms the truth in verse 5 as it continues into verse 6 to John. He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And you may have come across a person before that's made a bold claim. And maybe you've questioned that claim. And with confidence and audacity, they've said, write it down. I will get this done. It's almost as though he's saying, of course, again, that to John here in this moment. John, write this down. Or perhaps it's better said he's telling John to write this down because John has become so transfixed in the vision of heaven. He's forgotten that he's supposed to be writing it all down. And God says, no, hold on a second. I know you're transfixed by the glory that's coming, but hey, make sure you write it down. I wonder if you've had any time in your life where you've had this interruption of heaven's glory. That you've been transfixed on what's coming. He says, write it down. The certainty is found. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Verse 6 continues into verse 7. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And he will be my son language there of heritage is normally associated in the New Testament with end times, last times, benefits of eternal life, inheritance in the kingdom, blessings, and and full forgiveness. And it belongs to those who have conquered in their faith. But invariably, isn't it true that when you come to reckon with the realities of the new creation, this side of heaven, You begin to wonder, or at least you ought to, am I going to see it? Because an eternal separation is coming, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Perhaps you might take that vice list and use it as a mirror. Do any one of those conditions and sins seemingly define my life? What God is saying is, of course, there's a separation that is on the way. That those who are my friends, well, they will dwell with me in the new heavens and the new earth, and those who are my enemies. All of these sins, and of course, all Sins ever known, listed as well, will be burning forever in fire and sulfur, a lake that is the second death. My children asked me recently, what's my favorite character in the Chronicles of Narnia? We have this thing in our house with a few of our children that they love to know what what my ranking system is. And the extent to which it happens in our home is one of our children asked me recently, what is your fifth favorite team in the English championship? 
And those of you that don't know football or soccer might not know what that means, but I responded, I'm not sure I know five teams in the championship that I really care about. But he came along, this same one later on, well, Dad, what's your favorite character in the Chronicles of Narnia? Oh, I know that one much better. I said, it's the mouse. Reepicheep. This brave mouse that if you know the story, he comes to the end of his time in the Chronicles as he's bent on getting to Aslan's country. And so as the book tells the story, just before he sails off into the unknown, Aripatip tells those that are near him, he says, My plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the dawn treader. And when she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world into some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. I'm going to get there, is what he says. I trust you can come across a passage like this and think likewise. I'm going to get there. For this is where I belong, my home in heaven. And I want you to see that this kind of heavenly heart for your heavenly home is, is quite powerful for the Christian life even today because there's two final things I want you to notice as we begin to close. The first of which is your future home calls for present courage. Your future home calls for present courage. Because did you notice how the leading vice of verse 8, but as for the cowardly. Do you not think that in our culture and time there would be a different vice that would lead a list of those who belong to the lake of fire? But for the original hearers of Revelation, this would make total sense, wouldn't it? For those that are facing persecution for their faith under the Roman Empire, for those for whom the beast is warring against, wanting their allegiance, wanting sin and self to swallow up their life so that they would forsake the Lamb who is Jesus Christ, in fear and faithlessness to the cowardly belongs a lake of fire. Of course, therefore, to the courageous belongs eternal life. Hasn't he just said the same thing in verse 7? To the one who conquers, he will have this heritage, that I will be his God and he will be my son. It's the 15th time, it's actually the final time too, in Revelation that we have this theme of the conquering Christian. Where Christ continually tells his people, you must conquer in your faith if you're to receive the Lamb's gift of eternal life. What kind of foe faces you in your spiritual life? What strategy does Satan seem to most often throw your way? Have you learned that in Jesus Christ you are more than a conqueror? And that courage should mark your life. But so often we fall short, don't we? Which leads to the second and final encouragement. Your future home calls not only for courage, but for your present comfort. For your present comfort. He says, yeah, this side of heaven, your tears may be wet upon your face. Your eyes may rarely dry, such as your suffering and affliction, but you can take comfort. There's a time coming where he'll wipe them all away. You, of course, may be facing down death, 
You have a loved one who's facing down death. This final foe that's going to be defeated, but take comfort. I'm going to hurl him too into the lake of fire. You may wake in the morning, walk throughout the day, in aches and pains, but take comfort. The time is coming when that will all be gone too. You may now walk by faith, And not by sight. But take comfort. The time is coming. When you're going to see the Lamb. In all of His beauty. For glory. Glory dwells. In Emmanuel's land. The place of the new heavens. And the new earth. When God makes all things. New in Jesus Christ. What comfort and courage. Might that bring you this week. Marriage comes along the way. A wedding ceremony comes along the way and someone reaches upon your arm and says, Are you ready? A marriage wedding ceremony is coming. And I do hope that you might say, Yes, I'm ready. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would comfort us in the tender mercy of Jesus Christ. That you would forgive us for the ways in which we have thought little of our heavenly home and the new creation. Lord, hasten the coming of your Son. We thank you that he has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us. And to even prepare our hearts now as we long to see him. We long to be with you. And to enjoy you in the everlasting rest and blessedness that is ours in your Son. In whose name we pray these very things. Amen. Let's stand together as we...